0: <laughs>
1: it's twelve past three. All right, well, I'm going first tonight. Uh, a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. The story that I'm doing turned out to be a bigger monster than I thought it would be. Well, it's a ghost, but the story was a monster. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So tonight I am talking about the haunting in Bridgeport, Connecticut in the late 60s, early 70s. More specifically, the home at 966 Lindley Street and the family of Jerry and Laura Gooden. Now, the only reason I bring up the specific address is because of the house number 966. Ah, I didn't really pay attention to it until I had seen a picture of the house and it had those, you know, those standard metal house numbers. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, if that nine just flipped over, I was surprised nobody mentioned that in all the reading I did.
0: That is interesting that no one else brought that up.
1: Yeah, I thought, For sure, somebody would say something. Yeah. So as I mentioned last week, I was delayed because I wanted to read the book from William J. Hall, The World's Most Haunted House. Originally, I dismissed the book because I have an issue with Most Haunted Anything. Yeah. We've been through this discussion before about Most Haunted New Orleans, Most (laughs) Haunted This, Most Haunted That. But anyway, so I read the book. It was an interesting book lot more detail than anything I could find elsewhere. Let me get on with it. (laughs) Jerry and Laura Gooden purchased the house in 1960. It is a four room, so not a four bedroom, a four-room, one bathroom, 738 square foot bungalow with a basement. So very small, single level square clapboard house. Mm. Very unassuming. Yeah. Right? Not something you would anticipate that there's evil doings going on.
0: I'm assuming the basement is unfinished.
1: Uh, My assumption, yeah. That gives me a good indicator that (laughs) it's not going to be good. Yeah. They did have some things going on in the basement, but I don't talk about that too much with everything else that went on. Yeah. And they didn't talk about the condition of the basement. My assumption was for the age of the house, unfinished, maybe even a dirt floor, very creepy, dark. Yeah. You know, typical spooky basement. The Goodens had a son who had cerebral palsy, and he passed away at age 6 in 1967.
0: Oh.
1: He'd gotten a cold and a fever that had jumped up to 109, but the doctors could never figure out what was wrong. Oh, my gosh. And sadly, he passed away. From what I read, the Goodens had dedicated themselves to their son, And made sure that he had whatever he needed and gave him the best life that they could. Yeah. So by all accounts, they were good parents. Some said that their only fault was being overprotective. But that seems understandable given the situation. Yeah. That protectiveness and the impact of losing their son factors in later though.
0: Okay. Keep that in mind. A mental note.
1: Yeah. In 1968, they adopted a four-year-old girl named Marcia. She was from Canada and was a full-blooded Seneca Indian. The only reason I bring that up is because it was mentioned that her looks was one of the reasons she was later constantly bullied at school Uh after they had adopted her. And I don't recall why she was up for adoption, what her situation was back in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I read that she was also sometimes called Marcy, I assumed as a nickname. Yeah. To me, that's easier to say than Marcia. Yeah. So I'm going to stick with Marcy. Okay. The Gooden said strange occurrences started in the house soon after Marcy arrived. But there were little things that most people wouldn't really notice, like things going missing and then showing up somewhere else later, or a chair in a room was not quite in the same spot that they thought it was the last time they were in the room people wouldn't notice that well small things that would make you wonder but too You're, subtle to make any real
0: you would just justify it yeah in late
1: 1971 they began to hear a rhythmic knocking in the house no it's, yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right that's where
1: i go out <laughs> at first it, it would start at night Jerry said there was a definite pattern to the knocking, and it would start as a light tapping and escalate to a loud banging, and then eventually stop. Over time, it would start happening at any hour of the day or night, and he said it was like the house was being stoned. That was hmm. his description. Time check out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> After the first night, I wouldn't even stick around for it to get loud. I'd be out.
1: But at first, they weren't scared of it. They were just annoyed. And wondering what, what was going on. You know, they, were, they weren't thinking this is supernatural. They were just thinking, what is making this noise?
0: Like, were they thinking that it was the pipes or something? Yeah.
1: So, okay. in 72, they contacted the police for the first time about the noise. I thought that was kind of odd, but maybe some, you know, just a different time, right? Yeah. At first, Jerry had wondered if it was the neighbor kids playing pranks Or there was also some developers who were proposing building a condo next door. Yeah. And he was vocally opposed to it. So he thought maybe the developers were doing stuff to try to get people to sell. Yeah. The problem with both of those theories, though, was the noise seemed to be coming from in the house. And the family he suspected might be pranking them had actually ended up moving at one point and... The noise still continued.
0: How far away did they move, though? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're dedicated.
1: (laughs) Police, fire, city officials all tried to help identify the source of the noise. Even sending out different specialists never could find out what was going on.
0: What kind of specialists?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was some construction going on for a freeway not too far from them. So they were trying to determine if that was somehow causing the noise. They had the foundation inspected, gas lines, as you just mentioned, plumbing, all checked. They even replaced the furnace. Hmm. Knocking continued. At some point, the city officials just gave up. I guess they were like, well, good luck with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what are you supposed to say? Yeah, I know. What can you do? I'm just surprised that that many people were involved in trying to figure it out. I feel like in the beginning, they'd be like, well, sounds like your problem.
1: Yeah, I was, I was really surprised by that, too. But again, I think a different era. Yeah. I don't know. That was, it was weird to me that they called the police because of this banging. Might have been saying, hey, I think somebody's you know, doing this to us. Yeah. And that's why they're called.
0: That makes sense.
1: Jumping to the summer of 74, couple of incidents. Laura and Jerry saw a disembodied hand in one of the windows. But... Quickly investigating, they didn't find anybody outside. One evening in early autumn of that year, they heard three sharp knocks at the front door.
0: Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm.
1: <laughs> Laura went to answer it, but nobody was there, and although it was a dry night, she was puzzled because there were wet footprints on the stoop. What?
0: And they, they questioned it, right? Like, they weren't trying to justify that?
1: I'm not sure if they question these things at this point yet. Yeah. We're getting to the point where they're going to not be questioning things anymore. Oh, my
0: gosh. I just want to say, pro tip, if you hear three knocks, (laughs) do not answer. Move. (laughs) Don't don't answer
1: and then start packing. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The three knocks means you need to pack your stuff and leave.
1: Yes. (laughs) So Marcy was starting fifth grade at this time. As I mentioned, she was bullied because of her looks, and kids would say she looked like a boy, and they called her ape. Oh. Yeah.
0: Kids are mean. Mm-hmm.
1: Early in the school year, she was injured when a boy in her class punched her hard in the back and kicked her in her pelvic and groin area.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: She ended up having to wear a soft back brace, and her parents removed her from school and began having her tutored at home. Let me step back a little bit to a couple of things I forgot to mention. Okay. So as I had said, the Goodens were overprotective. Yeah. Possibly stemming from what they went through with their son. Or maybe that was just their nature.
0: Makes sense.
1: Either way, that overprotectiveness unfortunately carried over to Marcy. Laura walked Marcy to and from school, even at lunchtime. And she wouldn't let her go out to play with other kids. So except when Marcy was in school, the Goodens never left her side.
0: Huh. That seems
1: draining. Yeah. So Laura, maybe even Jerry, too, they were so worried about something happening to Marcy.
0: It's. I was going to say that's crazy, but I'm not a parent, so I wouldn't know.
1: I mean, definitely don't want to smother kids, right?
0: It just seems sad because if you're a kid and not being able to go outside and play with kids, where do you get any experience from? Right.
1: Another note, because of that overprotectiveness, the only real friend that Marcy had was a girl named Rosemary. She was the daughter of some friends of the Goodens. On several occasions when they would come over, Rosemarie would find Marcy sitting on the floor of her room, cross-legged, eyes closed, rocking back and forth, and talking in a strange language. When Rosemarie asked what she was doing, Marcy said she was talking to her grandfather. Her grandfather was a respected chief on the reservation and unhappy the Goodens had taken her away. Now, I'm not sure if that was her story, of her grandfather, or that was actual fact.
0: Yeah. That's weird. Yeah.
1: So n- normally, with someone in Marcy's situation, you would just think, well, she's just pretending, maybe just looking for attention, you know, given everything she's gone through. Yeah. Dealing with being adopted and everything, and wouldn't give it much thought, right? But given all the events, you have to wonder if that factors in somewhere.
0: Yeah. Well, also a different language. Well, you know, yeah,
1: was she making it up, or was she actually talking in her native language It never said whether she knew yeah. her native language? Maybe it was her grandfather who was the poltergeist. Uh, <laughs> Getting like, back at the Goodens for taking his granddaughter away. Once again, making it her fault. Well, <laughs> anyway, like I said, normally I wouldn't think twice about that. Yeah. But given everything that's going on, everything comes into question.
0: Well, it's strange.
1: Yeah. But anyway, so now we're in November of 74, and this is when this shit really hits the fan.
0: My gosh.
1: And there was so much that happened, it would take me hours to go through everything. And a lot of it is repetitive, so I don't want to continue saying, you know, this happened again and again and again. Yeah. So I'm going to try to stick to the highlights on some stuff and then just discuss some of the important events. So we're in November. The Goodens invited some neighbors over for dinner, Jamie and Janet Howlsworth. They were eating in the living room when they heard glass breaking. A window pane in the master bedroom was shattered, but it appeared it had been broken from the inside. Hmm. The next day, they were watching TV in the living room in the evening, and they heard noises from the master bedroom. The curtains had fallen down. They put them back up as they were leaving the room they fell down again. Mm-mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> so they just decided to leave them on the floor. <laughs> 30 minutes later, there was a loud noise in the kitchen, and the curtains and curtain rod from the back door had fallen down.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say that the curtain and curtain rod from the master bedroom was in the kitchen.
1: Oh, you know, I had read a, an article that implied that, but oh. then when I researched it more, it was, no, the curtains in the kitchen had fallen down also. Okay. I was going to say. Because I was like that <laughs> first. I was like, what? Oh, the, the curtains show, showed up in the kitchen. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, of course, sometime later that evening, the knocking started again, slow, gentle, tapping at first and growing louder into a pounding. And then it would eventually stop. I would go insane. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't deal with that. There's no way. Now we're on the 23rd of November. Okay. Returning home after a day trip to visit relatives, Jerry noticed the television in Marcy's room, which normally sat on a high shelf, was on her bed. He thought that was odd, but he just put it back.
0: (laughs) Why are they being so nonchalant about this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think this is where it stops getting nonchalant. After he put the TV back, he went into the kitchen And he saw the plates rising up out of the sink, and they were flying around the room and then smashing into the floor.
0: Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. At least clean the dishes if you're going to be levitating them.
1: Wait, then? Yeah, (laughs) right. Then five knives came out of the knife block mounted on the wall and flew across the room. Laura stepped back out of the doorway to get out of the way, and then Jerry ducked and raised his hands. But well, luckily, none of the knives hit him. Why would he raise his hand? To protect his face. Oh. <laughs> he went over to inspect the knife block. And while he was walking over there, it pulled out of the wall and came flying across the room towards him. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. What do they do to piss it off? Yeah, I don't know. At first, I thought maybe the ghost just didn't like the way they decorated their house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... <laughs>
1: well, maybe that's what is going on here. Oh, my
0: gosh.
1: So as things calmed down momentarily, they cleaned up. Laura started putting away the groceries that they had picked up on the way home. And then Jerry had went out to the car to get the rest of the bags. Hearing a noise behind her, Laura turned to see two of the kitchen table legs lift up. So the table was lifting up, tilting up. Mm -mm. And then it flipped over. Then the refrigerator started to slide and rise They said it rose about six inches before it dropped back down again.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Next to the stove, they had one of those old council TVs, you know, those old floor models. Yeah. And that tipped over and landed on her foot and cut her foot. So by this time, Jerry's rushed in, got the TV off her foot, cleaned and bandaged her wound. And then he set to cleaning up again. (laughs)
0: <laughs> are they not leaving? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not going. They're not going anywhere. Trust they're like, Oh, let me clean this up and let me go get the groceries and start putting that away. Well,
1: then they eat dinner. <laughs>
0: oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> so after dinner, Marcy and Jerry helped Laura into the living room. And then Jerry returned to the kitchen to shut the light off, only to find that the table had tipped over again. So I guess he set that all back up, went back in to watch TV. Later that evening, went to go get some coffee. When coming back out of the kitchen, he heard a noise and turned to see that the table had tipped over again.
0: Why would you just not leave it at that point? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Once again, he fixed the table. Oh, my gosh. And it was at that point they decided maybe they should just go to bed.
0: (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) gosh.
1: How the the hell do people go to bed in these situations?
0: Normally, I don't think they would.
1: I don't know. You hear that all the time, right? I guess maybe they have nowhere else to go, but
0: I, I don't care. I would rather go camping. Yeah. And that says a lot for <laughs> <Yeah>. me.
1: <laughs> I think I would rather just sleep in the car.
0: Yeah. For some people, it's camping.
1: <laughs> Jerry went into the bathroom to get ready for bed. He heard Marcy call out from her room. Her TV had fallen off again and landed on her ankle, but luckily she wasn't hurt. After that, they decided they weren't as tired as they thought they might be, so they decided to get up and watch some TV. They were watching a movie, and at some point, Marcy got up to go to the bathroom. Laura and Jerry heard a ruckus in there, went in, and the bathroom was in total chaos. Now, I'm not sure if they saw what happened or they were coming in to the aftermath. Yeah. But it was, the curtains were down, the shower curtain was down, toiletries, towels, Scatter all over the place.
0: Jeez.
1: Once again, they cleaned everything up. At this time, it was about three in the morning. So they went to bed. Good time to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how you sleep after that.
0: No. I feel like at this point, it's like cleaning up after a a ghost child. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing tantrums. I'm going to be haunted after (laughs) that.
1: The next day, Jerry got up to make some breakfast optimistic that it would be a better day. (laughs) I guess, maybe, I don't know.
0: I wonder what it's like to have that mindset. Yeah.
1: (laughs) He once again found the kitchen table, flipped over, and the refrigerator was pushed over against the back door. But they said they had not heard any noise. Of course, if you went to bed at three in the morning, you could have just as well slept through it.
0: Yeah, I would have been knocked out.
1: Yeah. He goes into the master bedroom to tell Laura what happened. And they have a picture of Jesus in the room and a crucifix on the wall.
0: As they all do.
1: And they came off the wall, nails and all, fell to the floor.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: They then heard a crash in Marcy's room. A large bureau had fallen over and a crucifix that was hanging above her bedroom door fell with such force that when it hit the carpet, it broke apart.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: At that point, they hear a commotion in the living room. They had three recliners in their living room. They were all shaking. At this point, they're trying to figure out what to do. Laura calls their friends, the Hoffmans, asking for help. Harold Hoffman left to drive over, and his wife, Mary, called the police. The Goodens then decide to go outside. Spotting a neighbor girl, Janet Hallsworth, who was the daughter of a police officer, they asked her to go get her father. When her father arrived, John Halsworth, Jerry asked for his help because something evil was tearing apart their house. Entering the house, the place was in shambles and looked like it had been robbed. Household items, furniture, all in disarray. Yeah. Halsworth saw the TV rotate, move around, saw the recliner shaking, and saw the fridge slide across the kitchen floor. He said, without making a sound. Not being able to figure out what was going on or come up with a reasonable explanation, he called for backup. Two officers on patrol in the area responded, followed by a second patrol car. It was reported that while the police officers were in the kitchen, some of them witnessed the fridge rise up six inches and then drop back down. They also made a note that Marcy was sitting in the living room watching cartoons, not showing any concern about what was going on.
0: Hmm. Sure, blame it on the kid.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, there's yeah innuendos there, right? Yeah. And that's where it'll all lead to. Mm-hmm. So this chaos they experience over and over and over again. I will not continually say, well, yeah, all this stuff happened in this day and this day and this day or whatever. I think the important thing to take from it is that even though there were these implications about Marcy, that these things were being seen by other people.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I'm surprised that it didn't like stop when other people were in there.
1: Yeah. Cause then, then you'd be like, oh, yeah, what are they, what are they trying to pull? Yeah. The people coming in were even like going down to the basement to see if there was something underneath the kitchen, you know, like something that was rigged up to make this stuff happen. Yeah. And they could not find anything. So at this point, police are there, fire departments arrived. And at some point, the firehouse chaplain was called in. He said, there is an evil spirit in this place.
0: Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: you think? (laughs) And he decided he's going to bless the house. Pulls out his Bible, rosary beads, bottle holy water, sets it on a table nearby. He goes to reach for the bottle and it falls over before his hand even gets near it. Sets it back upright. Oh, my gosh. Wants to see if it'll happen again. Yeah. Reach for it, falls over again. At that point, he said, maybe it was best not to aggravate the spirits. (laughs) So, he just did a quick prayer. (laughs) Oh, my God. Hey, good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. A neighbor, Mary Pascarella, who worked at the Reed School Library and was part of the Psychic Research Center called Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, now, this wasn't talked about in anything I read, but my understanding is that Mary Pascarella was very well-known in psychic circles.
0: I've never You know, heard if that. you
1: were in those circles, oh. you would know her. Yeah. But she's not like somebody like, you know, the Warrens. Yeah. It was interesting to me, though, that she lived in the neighborhood. Yeah. It's like, what are the odds, right? So that was kind of strange. Warrens show up. They had been doing their work for 20 years at this point but weren't known like they are today or even after this. So the Gooden case was their first widely publicized investigation. Yeah. By the next morning, reporters began to arrive from New Haven in New York, and the story went national. Jeez. Soon, crowds of people started gathering outside, people hoping to get a glimpse of what was going on.
0: Why do people like want to see that?
1: Yeah. Well, so another side reference... The Exorcist book was published in 71, and the movie was released in December of 73. So that probably played into the frenzy
0: okay, of that people
1: makes... hearing the story and wanting to go see what's going on.
0: That makes sense.
1: There were times when the crowd was estimated to be upwards of 2,000 people.
0: I feel like that would get annoying to have that many people outside your home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: I would think so. <laughs> <laughs> So as we were talking about, Marcy is kind of implicated in being the focal point of the entity. Yeah. Later, Ed Warren described Marcy as a quiet, sweet girl that did not get angry, but kept her emotions inside. Someone of that age bottling in a lot of emotion is believed to be a prime trigger for poltergeist activity. At least in part. What's that?
0: So I say if I feel like if that were true, then there'd be a lot of culture guys. <laughs> in. I,
1: I have that in my notes. It's like, yeah, if that were true, every teenager that kept their emotions bottled and triggered yeah. <laughs> this type of activity, it would be a much different world.
0: Yeah. <laughs> not uh, discrediting any story. Yeah.
1: They say that's a partial trigger, so yeah. not that that at the time of the events though when Warren's were there. Ed talked to the police superintendent, Joseph Walsh, and told him the incidents were caused by poltergeist activity. The superintendent's response was, quote, come on, please tell the guys down there to clear it up and get the hell out of there, end quote. So he was just tired of his officers wasting time down there. Yeah. And wanted to resolve this and get out of there. The Warrens had left and then they returned that evening. When Lorraine was looking around the house, someone noticed she had a second degree burn on her hand. She said she had only felt a light touch, and then she commented that she felt nauseous in the house, but mostly around Marcy's room. Hmm. Someone also commented that there was a sulfur smell that appeared to be coming from her room. Ed and a priest believed an exorcism was needed. Ed believed the entity was demonic and talked to the Goodens about performing one. They were willing to try anything at that point. At one point, the entity reportedly showed itself. Like I said, this thing, this stuff was going on for a couple of days, right? So there's people in and out and everything. Yeah. So there's like the Warrens were there and other people were in there, police officers, uh, obviously the Goodens. But they said at one point the entity showed itself and it, quote, resembled a large, cohesive assemblage of smoky, yellowish, white, gauzy mist, end quote. Whatever the hell that is.
0: I don't understand <laughs> what that means.
1: And I read that it broke into four different figures. But... That was about all that happened. It appeared, and then it, it was gone. Hmm. Things were getting so crazy outside, they actually had eight police officers and four squad cars being used to control the crowds and the traffic.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So now we're on November 25th, 9.45 p.m. at night. WNAB radio reporters Tim Quinn and Bob Pentano arrive at the house. Tim asked to speak to Ed, whom he knew from previous interviews. With the Goodens' permission, the reporters came into the house. Soon after they arrived, Marcy got up to go to bed. She went into the kitchen and stopped near where Lorraine Warren was sitting. Marcy then suddenly flew backwards, hitting her arm in the fridge and slamming into the wall, allegedly pulled back, or thrown. Several people rushed to help her. While all the commotion was going on, the Gooden's cat, Sam, approached Bob Pantano and Bob swore it said help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: There are also some other stories about the cat talking, but it was it was really odd stories. So I just left them out.
0: I feel like it's something that people wanted to hear to like yeah. add to the story.
1: Well, we'll get to a, a little bit of that. Okay. On the night of November 26, Officer Mike Costello arrived at the house for crowd control. It was a very cold night, so the crowd outside was smaller than it had been. Jerry asked if the officer could stay inside for their protection, so Costello called additional officers. Officers Duwaki and Del Toro soon arrived. At some point, Costello witnessed Marcy quietly extend her leg and nudged the television with her foot. Again, think one of the floor models, right? Yeah. The television knocked against Jerry and startled him. (laughs) Then Marcy quickly pulled her leg back. After having a talk with Marcy, Del Toro said she confessed that she kicked the TV and made Sam talk, and even showed them how she pulled it off.
0: So she was the talking cat.
1: Yes. Allegedly. So Marcy is crying at this point. Costello asked her why she had done it. She said she wanted to see if the demon would do anything. So even at that point, she's not saying she did everything. She's saying she did some of this stuff. Yeah. But then she was asked about the blister on Lorraine Warren's hand, and Marcy said Lorraine put her hand under hot water. So she's alleging that the Warrens were staging some stuff. Yeah. But again, that doesn't take away from everything that's happened to this point, right? Yeah. Asked if anyone put her up to doing this stuff, she insisted no. At that point, the officers reported the hoax, and the Warrens came under suspicion as being involved. As I said, it's important to remember the things that were happening and the witnesses that they had, and the fact that some of these things were happening when Marcy or Jerry or Laura weren't even in the room, that it was happening in or even when marcy wasn't even home plus if you know they pin this all on her you have to question how a 10 year old could pull all of that off
0: especially when it comes to the refrigerator
1: yeah exactly so kind of suspicious that labeled a hoax yeah they had an inspector come in who's i believe just like a detective to kind of close out the case The police recommended having a doctor talk to Marcy, so Dr. Santiago Escobar of the city's Mobile Medical Services was sent out to speak with the Goodens and Marcy. He concluded the girl was in need of psychiatric treatment and advised taking her to Baptist Memorial Mental Health Clinic.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: The Goodens were not happy with the Warrens, And what Marcy suggested about Lorraine intentionally burning her hand and the suggestions that the Warrens were embellishing the story to gain publicity.
0: So she wasn't happy that their daughter said that, or she wasn't happy that it was possible that the Warrens were making it up?
1: They weren't happy that it sounded like the Warrens were using them to gain publicity.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: Jerry also said that Ed was making toll calls from their house, calling reporters to get the story out. So remember at this time, calls actually cost money. (laughs) It was like, you know, calls are all free these days. Yeah. Calling long distance back then cost a fortune. Also, rumors started to circulate that Ed had drugged Marcy with candy and had used witchcraft to put everyone under a spell. Oh my... The police initially left, the superintendent glad to have a reason to get his men out of there. But during the aftermath, as people continued to crowd around the house, they had to come back to work crowd control. One evening, Jerry smelled smoke and alerted an officer outside, who found a small fire had been started at the back corner of the house. The officer saw two men in the woods behind the property. Those men were later picked up and charged with attempted second-degree arson. They said they were trying to rid the house of evil.
0: Jeez.
1: As December approached, things were quiet in the house and the crowds began to die down, except for the few diehard ghost hunters. What?
0: (laughs) Just the dedication.
1: Yeah, yeah. On December 10, Laura rushed out to the police officer that was on duty and told him that things were happening again. I believe a couple officers went into the house. They reportedly saw a recliner move. Marcy was in clear view and nowhere near the recliner at the time. A desk moved a couple of feet towards the officers. One of the officers witnessed the entire motion and commented how strange and quiet the movement was. Yeah. At this point, the events start all over again. Again, rinse, repeat, I'm not going to get into the details. One of the priests, Father Doyle, assured them he was trying to get the church to approve an exorcism, but the church was cautious to approve them to begin with, but especially with the publicity of this case and the claims of a hoax, yeah, they were kind of resistant.
0: That makes sense.
1: On Monday, December 16, Boyce Beatty contacted them about the Psychical Research Foundation doing an investigation. Now, this investigation they did was really weird to me, at least how it was explained. It wasn't like you would think an investigation these days. Yeah. It was mostly them interviewing everyone involved. So it seemed more of a psychological investigation. Yeah. A couple interesting notes from that. They did interview Ed Warren. He vouched for what he had witnessed, provided them with his tapes and the tapes that the Goodens had provided him from earlier in 1972 with the knocking noises. They talked to Inspector Clark, so he was the detective that was put in charge of closing the case and reported it as a hoax. Yeah. He told them he believed there was more to the story than originally thought, but he was pressured from his superiors to close the case and get the crowds under control.
0: So make them look bad so you look good at your job.
1: Yeah, they just had a lot of officers out there. Crowds were getting out of hand. They needed to figure out a way to just get it to stop. So sounded like this was the easiest way. Many of the witnesses, such as the police officers, kept officially quiet about what they saw because they were afraid of the repercussions. They didn't want to put that in their reports. I did read a short bit of the transcript where Boyce Beatty and a priest were talking with the Goodens after the investigation concluded. And it was a very strange conversation, at least reading the transcript. Yeah. The three recommendations they gave to the Goodens were get Marcy back into school, get Marcy counseling, and for the Goodens to seek counseling themselves, which was interesting, right? Yeah. A big part of the conversation was about the Goodens, mostly Laura's, overprotectiveness of Marcy. They were talking about how she needs to give Marcy some freedom to live her life, to even let her walk to school on her own and go out and play with other kids. Now, I can kind of see this, too, because in the conversation, Laura was very adamant about she would not allow Marcy to do those things because she was so certain that Marcy would die crossing the street. Oh. I mean, she was very adamant about that. Even as the priest and boys were talking to her, trying to convince her that it was okay to let her, that yeah. you know, kids don't generally die when they cross the street. She just wouldn't hear it. Huh. Another part of the conversation was the Goodens feeling like they were being labeled as crazy because of the suggestion that they seek counseling. Beatty and the priest were trying to tell them it was for them to have somebody to talk to about everything that was going on and everything they were going through. But I imagine back then there was a real stigma about getting psychiatric help.
0: Yeah, I can see that.
1: Eventually, the Goodens contacted attorney Victor Ferrante. He wanted the Goodens to only do interviews that they would be paid to do. But they weren't interested in making money off of the situation or gaining more attention. They just wanted it to all stop so that they could get their lives back.
0: Yeah, it's a good indicator that they're not faking it yeah to me it is
1: they did one last interview i don't have my notes here it was i believe for the radio station but they refused to ask for payment on it yeah and i'm not sure why they did a final interview but the lawyer sent a letter to the warrens notifying them to not talk about the goodens so they didn't want them promoting that story in their lectures yeah he also sent them a bill for the phone calls ed made while he was in the house Good. <laughs> <laughs> no word on whether he actually paid it or not, but. The Gooden said that they ended up with about $5,000 in damage to items in their house, which would be the equivalent to about 30000 today.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. They did get Marcy back to school with assistance, so they got her into the Catholic school. You know, there's uh, tuitions, so they had to get assistance. Yeah. They felt that was better than putting her in public school again. And it was reported that Marcy was happy there. That's good. Yeah. The Goodens continued to be ridiculed and harassed, unfortunately. Jerry at work. Their house would be egged. Windows broken. Their car damaged. Tires slashed. Laura would find the clothes she hung up outside pulled down and laying on the ground. I don't get people.
0: I don't get what they even get out of that.
1: Yeah. It's like, what did the Goodens do to them that they feel it necessary to go destroy their property?
0: Yeah. Even if it was like a hoax and stuff like that.
1: Right. But yeah, it's like, what did they do to them personally? Exactly. That they feel the need to.
0: It's because they're mad that they spent hours. Outside. Outside (laughs) their house when it was none of their business in the first place.
1: Yeah. Weird. They couldn't put the house up for sale in January of 75, but they never could sell it. That goes back to how we had talked before about these days people will pay fortunes for houses that are tied to any type of yeah, any type of paranormal activity. Yeah. But they couldn't give the house away.
0: <laughs> could it also be because people are vandalizing it and word doesn't get around as quickly as it does now? I don't
1: know, I just think it is the times. Like now, paranormal stuff is obviously so popular and people want haunted houses. I don't think people really wanted haunted houses back then.
0: Isn't that very telling of how we are these yeah, days? Yeah. <laughs> like we're so desensitized that we pay so much for a haunted house. Yeah. Like to have that thrill and experience <laughs> everything.
1: Even with it being considered a hoax. Yeah. There's always going to be those people who believe one way or the other, right? Yeah. So still to me, if it went in the market today, I bet it would get snatched up in a second.
0: Yeah. I think it's also the architecture of the home, like the aesthetic of what it looks like on the outside. I feel like that also has an appeal these days. Like back then. yeah.
1: Well, yeah, this definitely isn't one of the.
0: But I'm talking about like in general with homes labeled as haunted. And people wanting to snatch it up. I feel like the looks of the outside of the home have a lot to do with. I have an appeal more towards the look of what the house looks like. A
1: certain look gives a certain aura. Yeah. And makes it either creepier or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I still think Zach would have bought it.
0: (laughs) Most definitely.
1: (laughs) Not being able to sell, they painted the house a different color and then they redid the front. To try to get people to, kind of like they did with the Amityville house, to get people to, where'd that house go? (laughs) (laughs) It was right here at this address. Well, Amityville, they actually changed the address too, right? Yeah. I don't know if they did that with this one.
0: It's like when Clark Kent has his glasses on versus when he does not (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's like... (laughs) Oh, oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, funny. Laura died on June 11, 1993, in an automobile accident. She was 68. Jerry died of natural causes on September 9, 1997, at age 78. Oddly, Marcio did not appear in either obituary as a surviving relative.
0: That's weird. Yeah.
1: While writing the book, William Hall attempted to locate her, even hiring a service to track her down but was unsuccessful. There were rumors that she had gone back to Canada to look for her birth family.
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, though, I read an article from 2015 where a coroner in Mansfield, Ohio, was attempting to track down next of kin for a deceased woman named Marsha mm.
0: hmm
1: She had changed her name.
0: not so uniquely (laughs) yeah
1: I don't know if she was truly trying to hide or what was going on but he was the one who discovered that she was actually Marcia Gooden of the Bridgeport Haunting huh she died on February 10, 2015 at age 51 young Yeah. the article said she died of natural causes but I'm not sure what is natural about dying at 51
0: yeah I don't know that was odd Especially in, you said, 2015. Yeah. Yeah, that's suspicious.
1: What? that was it. Sad ending to a bizarre and sad story. Yeah. That ran pretty long. I apologize. I hope that wasn't boring.
0: It wasn't boring to me.
1: Pretty bizarre. I didn't realize there was so much to the story.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how like detailed and popular it was, too.
1: Yeah. Well, popular then, but you don't hear about it that much now
0: yeah that's what i was thinking
1: because i don't recall hearing this story when I first heard it it sounded like the story from the second conjuring movie you know where the girl said she you know yeah was a hoax and all that stuff that was in england though yeah but since i just consumed all of our time we'll wrap it up and we'll get to your i know you had some stupid criminals we'll get to those next week yeah teaser (laughs) try to lighten the mood up a little bit hopefully yes thank you very much for joining us
0: make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories don't forget to follow us on twitter and instagram at 12 past three or email us at podcast at 12 past three dot com good night good night